Hello, this is Amanda. Welcome to this week's edition of The Very Curious Herbal. We've been looking at violets this week. Now, it's a little late in the year, admittedly, for viola odorata, uh, the one that we commonly use in traditional medicine these uh, at this time of year. It's, it's usually... A lot of people, a lot of writers will tell you it starts flowering around February. The only way I think I am aware of, I'm searching through my mind here to try and think of any other particularly strong indicators between the multitude of violet species. Um, but the one single thing that stands out for me about Odorata more than anything else is that it is scented. And the dog violet that looks um, pretty much indistinguishable from um, viola odorata doesn't really have much of a scent. Um, so the thing is, we still have them flowering up here in Scotland. It is May and the dog violets are now out as well. So the two are muddled up. But I know that a lot of the ones in the shady areas and the cooler sort of stretches wooded stretches by the river there are still uh, sweet scented violets growing and there's no harm in using dog violets they have in years gone by been used as well so I'm pretty I'm pretty happy to pick them knowing that some are scented and the odd dog violet might get mixed in but um I'm I'm going off at a tangent before I even get started we've been looking at violets a little later in the year than you might expect but it's always worth remembering that seasonality, that the things that are written in books have to be taken with a degree of fluidity. You have to take into account the landscape you live in, the plants and the other places that are growing around them, the prevailing wind, how much sunlight things get, and a multitude of other factors when you're saying categorically that May is a little late for violets. So violets are an interesting one. According to uh, the Romans, there's a, there's a rather, uh, mm, it's, a, it's a story of its time, shall we say. The goddess Venus got into a raging argument with her son, Cupid. She demanded to know who he found more beautiful the girls he was lusting after, or his mother. Not really a row you want to get into, but there you go. Cupid, unfortunately, <laughs> well, his eye was turned and he chose the girls. And Venus grew so angry that she turned on them and she beat them until they were violet and blue in colour. And then... They slowly but surely turned into plants, covering the woodland floor. This connection with Venus, the goddess we associate with love, is one of the reasons that we think they became an addition to love potions, leading on to the rhyme that we all grow up hearing. Roses are red, violets are blue, cherries are sweet and so are you whichever variant you prefer. In um, 
working around that, one of the other things about violets were that um, they grew up where Orpheus had laid his lyre. So, you know, there are, and again, I think there's another one. Um, it's Diana, I think, who, who turns one of her, one of her, her, her nymphs into a violet to protect her from the affections or the unwanted affections of Apollo. Uh, she protected, turned her into a violet to protect her chastity. And um, so violets have got really mixed messages going on, that of love, that of um, chastity, and, you know, but it's also this sort of poetic association with um, Orpheus. As I was working my way through all these stories, I was trying to seek one that spoke to me more about the traditional uses of violet in Scotland, or basically across uh, the British Isles, because I wanted something that may have spoken to Elizabeth Blackwell to tie in with our stories in The Very Curious Herbal and how they look at the social history and the world that Elizabeth grew up in. As you know, if you're in the Facebook group Botanica Fabulousness, where I go into I go into my research and things a little bit more as I'm going through the week and looking at the plants, I I got sidetracked by Linnaeus, who was a contemporary of Blackwell's, although he published his work slightly uh, later than she did. He was still working extensively in Sweden when Elizabeth was working at Chelsea Physic Garden. The uh, the the you know he, this this Linnaeus is famous for his classification of plants. The names change. We start to get a structure we're still familiar with today on how we identify and classify different species and different plants. And Linnaeus strangely took me in the direction of looking at education. Because one of the things that's quite interesting about Elizabeth Blackwell is if you read a lot of fairly easy texts, shall we say, I haven't delved into the academic hard um, heavyweights over this, but if you read easy referenceable texts about uh, women's education in the 18th century, although um, the dame schools are starting up and so uh, girls of lower classes are starting to learn uh, you know, basic reading and writing. Middle-class girls, although they had been taught, seem to have had, we're told, their focus drawn to basic reading, writing, music, needlework, art. Well, we know Elizabeth was a talented artist, so we can assume she had a degree of education. History, however, doesn't seem to be mentioned but the story I chose to tell you today, because I was looking for this traditional use of violet and the associations that are relevant to the 18th century, where violet is a sought-after um, sought syrup for coughs, especially um, those in children, and I was looking for something with a Scottish feel. I went back to a story I worked on a long time ago. 
This is one I wrote about eight years ago, um, and it's up on my blog if you want to if you want to check it out in written form. Um, inspired by Scottish history surrounding Mary Queen of Scots, I worked my way round deciding whether or not I would share it as part of the Very Curious Herbal Project because I wasn't sure whether middle-class girls in Aberdeen in the 17, early 1700s would have been taught history. But I suppose that Mary, Queen of Scots, would have been recent enough that those stories might still have been related. Our Elizabeth is an uncanny woman who seems to have been quite clever, really known what she was doing. I suspect those sort of stories about relatively recent history may well have been something she'd been told by her mother, father, governess, or maybe just have heard as she's growing up in Aberdeen before she leaves for London. This is a story that starts with two brothers living not in Aberdeen but near Glasgow in a place called Langside. Philip, they said, was fleet of foot, as fast as a horse. He could outrun any man and he boasted he could get to any place faster than anyone. Harris, his younger brother, was named for the hedgehog, slower and liking to take his time. The other boys mocked him, but his mother would say he took his time because he was careful. He paid attention to everything going on around him, however small or seemingly insignificant. As the sun rose on another day, the mother asked the two brothers to take food down to the royal encampment at the meadow near their home, where a battle was brewing, and Queen Mary was staying as she tried to flee her enemies. Once there, the brothers paid the Queen their respects and offered to help in any way they could, as their mother had bade them. Now, Mary was 26 miles from her home and her young son in Stirling Castle, trapped as she was by pursuers in battles, and as any mother would, she missed her small boy. She asked the two brothers to take him a message of love and bring back news of his welfare, promising to pay a purse of gold for the message's safe delivery. Philip, the elder, boasted of his speed and made haste northwards. Harris, the second, decided to follow to watch for his brother's safety and ensure the message found its way to the destination. It took less than an hour for Philip to be a good Two miles ahead, he ran through fields, leaping hedges and ditches, paying no mind to his surroundings. He ran through a field of aniseed-scented fennel, its soft, feathery fronds bedraggled and drooping from lack of water. But he paid no mind and ran on and on. He ran past the woods where the purple violets withered as the weeds overtook them, and he paid them no mind and ran on and on knowing by now he was miles ahead, and drooping himself from the day's exertions, he found the shelter of an elder tree. Now, folklore told that elder trees were as often as not the home to a witch, a pernickety witch, who could decide to dislike you on a whim. 
Philip with his careless attitude had broken off branches as he slumped beneath the tree and the witch who inhabited it had taken offence. She waited for Philip to be nicely relaxed and starting to snooze. She left her treehouse and set about imprisoning him in a trance. Meanwhile, Harris, the slower brother, had found his way through the drooping field of fennel and paying attention to its sad state had stopped to water it, popping a few pieces of the aniseed flavoured leaves in his backpack, just in case. He'd walked past weed-swamped violets and decided to weed a bit and make them some more space and then popped a few flowers in his backpack, just in case. And finally, slowly, he'd caught up with his brother, held in a trance by the witch beneath the elder tree. Now, all those times Harris had paid attention rewarded him. He knew at once from the tales he'd heard from his mother that fennel repels a witch and can revive a tired body. So waving the stalks of the scary figure, he placed them in his brother's hand for him to eat and broke the spell. Then, heeding the Queen's instructions, he kept slowly and steadily, as was his way, on until he finally reached Stirling Castle, whereupon he was ushered into the nursery to see the child and his nursemaid. A sorry sight met his eyes. The child was ill, coughing and spluttering in the grasp of a cold. The nursemaid was at a loss how to ease his sore chest and tickly cough. Again, Harris's observations paid off. He knew his mother's cure for a cough and promptly handed her the violets, which, made into a syrup, soon started to brighten the infant up and clear his chest. The nursemaid, in her gratitude, parceled him up some food for his return journey and a soft silk scarf embroidered with the young prince's initials and Harris, satisfied his job was done, made his way back to Langside. Now with his brother safe from the witch, the Queen's message safely delivered, the ill child helped. You'd think our tale was done. But unfortunately, on returning home, what should Harris find but Philip? Philip had made his way back to the Queen and, boastful as ever, was telling how he'd taken the message to Stirling Castle and claimed the Queen's bounty for the successful messenger all for himself. His boasting, however, didn't last long. His face soon fell as Harris arrived, the monogrammed silk scarf, waving in one hand and his tale of rescuing Philip from the witch to tell everyone round the campfire that evening soon convinced everyone which brother had been successful. As I say, this was a little story I wrote about seven or eight years ago now for, for school children, really, that, that was covering sort of a degree of Scottish history. They lived in the area of Battlefield, which is near uh, Langside, where the, the story is set. And it's got elements of real history attached to it. So Margaret of Athol, the real witch that the story is based on, was said to be one of Queen Mary, Mary Queen of Scots, um, uh, hand, you know, um, serving women, ladies in waiting. That's the word I'm wanting. She's said to have uh, taken away the Queen's labour pains using witchcraft. She's one of the of uh, the women. The song, the Four Marys. Um, a song taught in, in schools in Scotland until quite recently um, concerns 
I'm not about to break into song on the podcast. I will let you look up the Queen's Four Marys for yourself. Um, the other things that... Um, she, anyway, Mary... Margaret of Athel is also said to have... Um, one story goes that she had a jewelled box and she led a messenger astray with... Uh, lured them away with this jewelled box. And that's one of the reasons she got another reason she got accused of witchcraft. The other plants that feature in the story, the fennel, kind of is the one that, that sets the story up because um, marathon, the Greek word, means fennel or, or field of fennel. The, the Greek legend of Philippides, who ran from the battlefield of marathon, uh, is literally a, a a fennel field and runs from there to Sparta to ask for battle reinforcements. So it's a little bit of a nod towards the the Greek myth surrounding the plants. Um, and of course, as you'll have guessed, the story is based on the the legend of the tortoise and the hare, or a Scottish story that Duncan Williamson told about two hedgehogs. Um, but uh, yeah, I. I this is my version on it because I just wanted to tie in that story, that that little um, bit of insight into how violets would have been used in Elizabeth Blackwell's time. And I wanted it to be the sort of story that she might have heard about history when she was growing up. The sort of story that I hope when I share it piques children's interest in plants and helps them to start to see that there is more to them than might meet the eye. Thank you all very, very much for listening and I hope you've enjoyed this week's story. If you want to join me in the Facebook group where we have extra um, insights and um, all sorts of potions have been going on in the last week or so, then it's Botanica Fabulousness. And I hope you're all keeping well and hope to hear from you all soon. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.